Hello and welcome to the Be In Bane podcast, the show that inspires black voices with inspiring black voices and celebrates stories of black excellence. On today's episode, I'm riding solo without Ori. She's she's away at the moment. She's got some big things happening with her private practice, um, so she couldn't make this recording. But nevertheless, the show must go on. So today we're talking COVID vaccines. Now, this is a topical, topical topic worldwide at the moment, and it's currently dividing thoughts and opinions um, everywhere, and even within the black community too. Should we, should we not take the vaccine? Is it safe? Can it be trusted? Has it even been tested with enough black people? How would it affect black people versus other races? Um, does it affect things like fertility? All sorts of questions, right? And it's not just black people, to be fair, who are skeptical, um, but from what we know, there's a higher hesitance amongst black people. And conspiracy theories that are being spread don't help either. I mean, the internet is a weird, weird place. Um, I've heard Charlemagne, oh, who on his <laughs> podcast say so many times, nobody cares about the truth, where the lie is more entertaining, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's so true as well. Like even yesterday on Twitter, uh, there was a hashtag trend in it, RIP Elon because someone had spread a news story that Elon Musk had died in an explosion at Tesla and it like people started believing it. Okay. And so it's difficult to know like what's true and what's not. Even yeah, with the media yeah. themselves, there's, mm-hmm. they also have their own agenda at times um, right, and can't always be trusted. So mm-hmm. take Fox News, for example, in the States or even take the British press and how they're treating um, Meghan, you know, trying to dutty up her image because she doesn't want to be a doormat for the media here um, and for royal mm. families of you. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, so what I wanted to do um, with this platform today is to have a conversation about the COVID-19 vaccine with someone who is informed, who knows what they're talking about. And when it comes to the world of science and vaccinations. So, yeah, I'm hoping they'll be able to answer my questions um, and the questions of our community here at the Being Bane. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Asha Williams to a show. How are you, Asha? I am fine. Thank you for inviting me on. No, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. How are things going with states at the moment? How, how are you coping? Um, lockdown and pandemic life is not fun. Mm. Um, yeah, it's basically just work, supermarket, um, no social life. So I'm really hoping that we can get to herd immunity within the next couple of months if people can get on board with vaccination. Yeah. And small, small visits to a gym as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The gym with a mask. <laughs> yeah, with a mask on. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So, so to give everyone a bit of background to, to Asha. Um, so Dr. Asha Williams is a life scientist and is currently a presidential postdoctoral fellow at the prestigious Cornell University in the States. She did her undergrad in chemical and biomolecular engineering at NYU. She worked as a bioengineering intern at NASA before going on to complete her PhD um, at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, 
where she was also a vice president of the Black Graduate Students Association. So she has a specific interest or specialism in conjugate vaccines and is currently working on a cell-free biosynthesis of conjugate vaccines. Now, Asha, that sounds <laughs> that sounds kind of impressive to me, but I have no idea what that means. So <laughs> can you break that down for me? Yeah, so my research currently is basically aimed at simplifying the manufacturing process for a particular type of vaccine. Um, a lot of the vaccines that we use are conjugate vaccines, which is essentially you have a carbohydrate that's associated with the pathogen or whatever germ you're focusing on. And that's linked to a carrier protein, which makes it more immunogenistic. Okay, I'm <laughs> I I'm listening. I'm, I'm following. I'm following. Um, but overall, these, um, these vaccines are typically produced in living cells uh, to, to generate the products. And with that, you need specialized equipment, uh, cold chain manufacturing, uh, distribution is a bit more complicated. So what I'm doing is trying to produce these vaccines in a cell-free system, which will not require all of those things. And it kind of eliminates the financial and logistical challenges associated with conventional vaccine manufacturing. And ultimately, this is to expand the reach of vaccine campaigns in uh, resource-limited regions and impoverished regions. Mm. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds interesting. I was going to say, from what you said, that should make the availability of vaccines right. make it more available to like, places and right. yeah. like, smaller villages and things like that. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. So clearly, you know your stuff and... Um, it's great to see that you're flying the flag as well for black women within the science space. Um, I mean, me, myself, I, me and science fell out, I think, when <laughs> early on in my school years. I remember one science exam, the question was like, how was the earth made or something like that? And I just put God because I, I actually had no idea what the scientific term was. Yeah, um, yeah. Since then, me and science just didn't get on. But no, it's, it's, it's great to kind of hear what you're doing. And... You've also been very vocal on the topic of vaccination and trying to debunk some of the myths that are currently mm-hmm. floating around within social media. And yeah. I saw that you were featured on the BBC and you're also part of um, United Nations Halo Project, like, which is helping mm-hmm. to spread the yeah. right information, which is like, really cool. I really appreciate that. It's cool. So um, when I first came across you was last week at the ACLT's um, panel. So ACLT are the African Caribbean Leukemia Trust. And mm-hmm. it was a panel all about the vaccine with an honest conversation with views on both sides, but with a lot of practitioners on the panel too, who were able to give information which was um, accurate and true. And I thought that was really great. And I was like, I need to get you on this podcast just, just to kind of share that knowledge. I mean, what did you think about the event? Honestly, it was not what I expected. I expected it to be more of a conversation and it turned out to be a bit of a debate mm. um, because we also had um, patients on the panel who were who had very strong opinions against vaccines and they weren't always open to hearing the facts. So that was a, a bit challenging. Um, but I think it was a good conversation. We covered um, some good points. We answered a lot of questions. And I hope it keeps the conversation going. Yeah, I think that's that's all you can really do is yeah. is present the facts, and mm-hmm. you know, people then have to kind of make a choice based on that. But 
Um, at least I know from my perspective where I was slightly, I was on the fence um, a mm. bit before that conversation. Having listened back through um, what was spoken about, I'm now inclined to take the vaccine. So um, I, it, it did help in that way. So yeah, I, I'll kind of start off um, just first question. Um, mm-hmm. Can you confirm then that the vaccine is not part of some evil plan? To which is linked to a rollout of 5G as well to implant microchips into all of us and take over our brains. I just want to make sure that you're not part of this conspiracy too. <laughs> I'm absolutely not a part of any conspiracy. I'm out here trying to get through life just like everyone else. Um, I yeah, that's definitely one of the the myths that I've heard circulating. Um, I don't know if it's because part of the, the mRNA vaccine formulation is a nanoparticle uh, that surrounds the actual vaccine. It's basically a, a tiny particle of fat that encapsulates the vaccine and helps it enter our cells without being broken down by uh, proteins and enzymes in the body. So I don't know if when people hear nano, they start thinking of you know microchips and, and these types of devices, but nano is just a prefix. It means one billionth, so. Yeah, there's no truth to that. There are no microchips. You're more likely to be tracked by your cell phone that you have on you every single day. So if you're truly concerned about that, maybe check out your cell phone. <laughs> yeah, maybe the modern one-a-day technology is not, not for you. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, I mean, can you explain to us a little bit more? Because you mentioned um, a couple of things there, but can you explain to us a bit more about how the vaccines actually work then? Because mm-hmm. another thing I've heard a lot of, um, is that it alters DNA, but I know that's not mm. true either. Is mm-hmm. that correct? That is correct. That is not true, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, all vaccines essentially work by introducing your body to uh, the pathogen or the, the germ that it's trying to protect you against in some weakened form or inactivated form, or in the case of coronavirus vaccines, just a part of the the virus. So you don't actually need the entire virus in order to produce these vaccines. And what you're doing is essentially teaching your body how to recognize and fight the the virus when you do encounter it, you know, the actual virus versus the vaccine. Um, And if you look at viruses in particular, they have been around for many, many years, over hundreds of years, they've learned how to very effectively evade our immune systems. They've learned how to transmit really efficiently from person to person or from host to host. Um, And so things like, you know, taking vitamin D or vitamin C to boost your immune system and staying healthy, those are good. But when it comes to viruses, you need something very specific to build immunity against a virus. You need something extra. You can't just use natural remedies or ginger tea, et cetera. Um, I've I've seen that head on like different WhatsApp groups. I've had to have these conversations with my Jamaican aunties as well. So (laughs) I know the struggle. Same with Nigerian aunties. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So these vaccines are all of the ones that are out so far are based on the spike protein, which is found on the surface of the coronavirus. And this is what the virus uses to enter ourselves. So that's the the first point of contact, the spike protein. Uh, So essentially mRNA vaccines, they introduce 
firstly, genetic code goes from DNA to RNA to protein. So it's a one-way street. You can't, you know, reverse. Um, mRNA vaccines jump in at that second leg, mRNA. Uh, it's injected into your arm muscle. Your cell has an area called the cytoplasm, which is sort of the general area. Then you have your nucleus, which is like in a city, it's the, the capital of your cell. And that is well protected. That's where all of your genetic material is, all of your DNA that makes you who you are. The mRNA does not enter your nucleus. It does not interact or affect your DNA in any way. It stays in the cytoplasm. Your cell has machinery that converts the mRNA to protein, the spike protein. Your body recognizes, wait a minute, this is not supposed to be here. And it generates an immune response. So it produces antibodies and T cells that destroy the spike protein, but also store a memory of it. So if you ever see it again, if your body sees it again in the form of you know, exposure to the virus, it will be able to very quickly destroy it and get rid of it before it can make you really sick. So uh, that's essentially how it works. And the mRNA also breaks down after, I think it's about 24 hours. So it doesn't stick around in your body and cause any after effects. It's sort of like a, um, a Snapchat message that you, you open, it exists for a brief period of time and then it's gone. Um, so that's essentially how the mRNA technology works. That's a really good way to think about it actually. Um, like a Snapchat message that yeah, appears, yeah. but if you get something on Snapchat, it doesn't necessarily impact the rest of your phone. It's only on right. specific app. So, right. yeah. so yeah. when you talk about it in those terms, as, a, as someone who works in technology, I, I, I get it. So, yeah. yeah so, no, but that's, that's, that's really good to hear. Um, now, there's a few different vaccines out there. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they differ from each other? Because one of the things that made me skeptical with a vaccine initially was that there were so many different ones that all of a sudden came out of nowhere. Right. Um, and it just made me think, has this thing been rushed? And mm. what does each one do? Are they exactly the same or are they different? And if they're different, why are they different? So maybe you can just try and clear that up for me a little bit as well. Yeah. So first I'll say about, I'll discuss why, you know, there are so many of them. Um, essentially when this pandemic became you know an issue and we realized like hey there's this this virus that's uh, killing people and spreading really quickly um the scientists in china they found the sequence of the coronavirus and shared it uh open source online so then you had a lot of different academic institutes and companies at the start and rushing off to find a a vaccine against the coronavirus. So obviously people are using different strategies, different technologies to get to the same endpoint. Um, and I think that's all tied into Operation Warp Speed. The name of that operation is a little problematic, but um, the idea behind it was just having a very, very high level of collaboration across different institutions, companies, um, schools, governments, and they also pumped a lot of money into it. Um, so, you know, if everybody is working on the same problem, even when you're in class, people, you get the same solution, but you, you're working maybe different or you use a different strategy to tackle it. Um, the types that I've seen, so I've already mentioned mRNA, there's also uh, an adenovirus viral vector that is used to transfer the DNA, well, part of the DNA that codes, again, for the spike protein into your body and it does the same thing. It basically transmits or transfers genetic material into your muscle cell again. 
your cell reads the information and produces that spike protein to generate an immune response. Um, and the vector that's being used, when people hear viral vector, they start getting nervous, but it's been modified to remove all of the elements that make it dangerous to humans, that make it you know, replicate and take over your body. So it's, it's a very, very watered down version. All it's doing is transferring that genetic material to your body in order to, to produce the spike protein. Um, and there are other companies, I don't think any of these are approved in the UK or the US, but there are other companies that are just delivering the actual spike protein to your body, um, which is also much more complicated and time intensive because you have to make sure that protein is pure and go through a, a lot of steps before it can be injected um, compared to mRNA where it's this very uh, fragile, tiny molecule that you're injecting and then your body does the work of making the protein and exposing your body to it. So it, it's a very much simplified process and that also added to the speed of development. I'll also add, since we're talking about speed, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but <laughs> um, it's kind of unfortunate that this is sort of the first time that a lot of people are having an insight into the vaccine development process and seeing how vaccines are developed because uh, it's such a dire situation that we're in and it's kind of on the news every day. Everything that happens with the vaccine is making front page news. Um, but a lot of the work that goes into vaccine development is within that preclinical phase, which is before it ever is injected into any human arm. A lot of years of research goes into um, even uh, identifying a viable vaccine candidate. And coronaviruses, they have been around for a long time. They are a family of viruses. So viruses come in families just like, you know, we do. Um, and a cousin of the current coronavirus was actually exposed to the population back in, I think, 2013, if you remember MERS, and before that it was SARS. Yeah, so yeah. they are all within that same family of coronaviruses. Um, and so back then, scientists were working on this coronavirus, um, trying to identify the best way to develop vaccines against it. That's when they identified the spike protein as a vaccine candidate. Um, and so when, you know, the current coronavirus was introduced into the population, it was a very, very similar strategy in terms of uh, vaccine development. So basically, there are years of research behind these vaccines. They aren't something that you know, suddenly they did like very fast research within a couple of months to push them out. No, there are years of research backing these these vaccines. That's good to know, um, because I think for a lot of people who aren't in the fields, um, in the scientific field, mm -hmm. we just saw out of nowhere, all of a sudden vaccines were being produced. And at least right. I, I wasn't aware that years have got like you scientists, you've been working on similar things for years and therefore mm -hmm. it's not like you're starting from scratch when exactly when yeah there was a, a whole database of, of information already mm. available on this family of viruses okay okay so what you're saying is when a vaccine comes to market then because mm -hmm. i know in the uk there's a pfizer there's um the oxford vaccine and i think moderna's potentially come in or um, mm -hmm. that's what i've heard so does that mean there's no real difference between them um, and once they come to market, we should have trust that they're safe and effective. 
So uh, vaccines, before they are approved, they go through rigorous testing, clinical trials, and tens of thousands of people, and they have to be approved by the, the FDA. Um, and that is a body of scientists and experts that very um, rigorously analyze the data that is presented by whatever company is, is trying to bring a drug candidate or a vaccine or anything else to market. So, uh, you know, because this happened very quickly, it doesn't mean that safety or ethics around the vaccine development were compromised in any way. I think back to my previous point, there was a high level of collaboration. So um, a lot of the scientists working within pharmaceutical companies, typically when you're developing a drug, you do your studies and you, you know, you get all your data, you put together a packet with thousands of pages and you present it to the FDA. And then they do, they do a review and kind of tell you, oh, we need to see this, or we need you to get to this um, mark marker or whatever. But with this situation, because again, it was so dire, there was a high level of communication between these two bodies. So the FDA would tell pharmaceutical companies, in order for a vaccine to be approved, we need you to have a you know, clinical trial involving this many participants. We need this percentage of safety, or you know, they laid out exactly what they needed and pharmaceutical companies had to meet that mark in order to get approved. So it, it was a much uh, more streamlined process than what usually takes place, which is a bit confusing normally. Um, and again, this does not mean that just because the FDA told them what they need, that you know the companies were suddenly magically able to produce it because there are many, many companies who were working on vaccine development and their candidates were never approved or never made it to market. So what we're seeing is kind of the best of the best getting out to the population. I see, I see, okay. Okay, and with the trials, were there any, because I mean, I heard stories that, you know, I think initially the trial, someone died during the trial. Um, has, Has that kind of been addressed? Okay, there were no deaths within the clinical trials of the COVID-19 vaccines that, that were a, a direct, <laughs> it was, there are, I'll, I'll say there are people who died. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was one person who died of a pre-existing condition. I, I have the details somewhere, but there were very specific medical reasons why these people passed away that are in line with what you would expect to see in the general population. There was no correlation between vaccination and the death. You also had people dying within the placebo group, which is the group that did not receive the vaccine and is sort of a control group to compare vaccination versus not being vaccinated. So there isn't any real correlation between those two. I think there were a lot of fake news stories and health stories circulating about people dying because of the vaccine during trials, but that is actually not factual okay so that clears that up then um and again this is why it's great to actually hear from an expert because you go off and believe what you hear on social media on the news and mm-hmm. yeah. whatsapp groups and you know it, it, it brings <laughs> those <up>. whatsapp groups <laughs> <laughs> yeah um okay so i mean why do you think there's resistance to a vaccine by some within the black community? Well, the history of the black community and you know the medical institutions in the US and maybe in the UK as well. I mean, there isn't a great history there. Mm-hmm. You have things like the, the Tuskegee experiments, um, Henrietta Lacks, her cells being used for 
a, a line, a cell line that's still being propagated today for cancer research, and she was never compensated or uh, asked for permission to for her cells to be used. So, you know, there are all these ethical issues there, and the distrust is warranted. I don't blame anyone for distrusting medical authorities based on our history with them. Um, but I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge those things. They did happen and they weren't right. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge the progress that has been made since that time. Um, I think back then during the times of Tuskegee, et cetera, the big difference is that black people did not have as much of a voice as they have today. Uh, even with this specific coronavirus vaccine, one of the lead or the lead scientists in developing Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine She's a black woman, Dr. Kismikia Corbett. Um, and the FDA also has black advisors who sit on their board and make sure, you know, if they're getting data and they're analyzing the data, is this vaccine effective? Yes or no? They are there to say, is this vaccine defect effective and safe for black people specifically? And um, even with the clinical trials, um, there were some delays with that because people were pushed, pe black people who were part of that institution were pushing back and saying, no, we need to pause this trial or not move ahead with it until we get more black people enrolled because we need to see that this is safe and effective in black people as well. Um, and for the coronavirus vaccine, black people were not you know, overrepresented. There was still less than ideal numbers of black people participating in the clinical trials, but definitely more Black people participated in these trials than a lot of other drugs and uh, medicines that are on the market. So that's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, but yeah, the, the concern, the fear, those are all warranted. But I think when I see people talking about these vaccines and their vaccine hesitant, I, you know, it's vaccine inquiry, basically. But I'm kind of it makes things a little more difficult for everyone, but I kind of like to see the, the pushback, even if it's negative sometimes, because it shows that, you know, Black people are not just accepting whatever is, is put out there. They're questioning things. They're, they're trying to learn. They're trying to educate themselves about what is happening. And it's good to see that. And it kind of puts the responsibility on medical institutions and scientists to, to educate people, because this is one of those unique situations where they need black people. It's not, <laughs> it's not that everyone else can take the vaccine and then we we're fine. No, everyone has to do their part and get vaccinated to get us to herd immunity. So it's, you know, in the past, black people's health disparities have been sort of our problem and we deal with it and we suffer. But now if we don't get vaccinated, if we don't protect ourselves, then nobody's really protected. So there's kind of more of an urgency to educate the Black community. And you see a lot of people trying to encourage Black people to get vaccinated. And that also makes people more suspicious because they're like, well, yeah. they've never wanted us to, to take anything that's good. Like if it's good, then, you know, if it's, usually it's bad things they're trying to push on us. But why are they trying to push the vaccine? But again, it's because of just the dynamics of a pandemic. Everyone needs to be protected in order to bring those those numbers down so it's a it's a unique situation yeah those those things you just mentioned is definitely what raised my suspicion um mm. i know i know about some of those historical cases where you know black people have been mistreated in the name of medicine uh, yeah and 
I'm fully aware of a lot of the systemic bias that still exists in a lot of institutions. Yeah, definitely. So when those things exist, um, like my, my, one of the main things that was still going through my head, even up until we're speaking now, was how many black people were involved in those trials. And is mm-hmm. it enough to have confidence that these vaccines aren't going to adversely affect a black person compared to someone who's white? or from another race, for example? Yeah, well, I would say from the, the clinical trial data and the numbers, there is no evidence that you know a Black person is going to be affected in a way that's different or more negative than someone from any other race. Um, and that data is all available on the FDA's website and individual pharmaceutical companies have data packages with those things available if people really want to dive into those details. And it's not a grouping, it's not a BAME grouping. They actually have numbers for Black people specifically if, if yeah. you're interested in Because, yeah, I, I, I no longer just look at any days which groups yeah. BAME because <laughs> that, that, that no longer means anything to Yeah, me. that's that's important. Okay, so again, there are two things that I was really worried about. I think you've cleared that up for me. Um, I do think some more acknowledgement probably from those who are pushing out and trying to encourage everyone to get vaccines would have helped because we're we're suspicious and I think we're rightly so suspicious because of what's happened in the past Mm -hmm. and there wasn't as far as I was concerned there wasn't enough um, acknowledgement of what happened in the past and comfort it was more a case of we need everyone to be vaccinated, including black people. In fact, right. black, yeah. people, black people, black people, you guys need mm-hmm. to do. And that, that yeah, just made because... me, when we asked me to do it, I was like, no, nah, there's something up here because they've never, they've never put me first in line for anything. Exactly. It's, it's funny because it's like for the first time, our health affects everyone else's health. So now everybody is like, oh, no, we, got, we have to get the black people on board to, you know, hmm. build, build up immunity so we can get to herd immunity. Yeah. So it's interesting, but um, I definitely think, you know, institutions could be doing more to to have these conversations, mm-hmm. but just doing my part, you know, kind of save a life. <laughs> it, really is a, it really is a matter of life and death. Every time I see um, misinformation or articles or fake stories circulating, I get so scared and so sad because I know how many people are going to be reading this and believing it and circulating it and it's good it might cost someone their life because they're making a medical decision based on misinformation it's very very saddening that's that's so true um I mean people I know um smart people are mm. still share misinformation even I think I've been guilty of it as well and mm. within my own family we've had two people who have died because of COVID-19 mm, so yeah. it's I'm something that, that definitely yeah. it's home in terms of the impact it's had um, mm-hmm. which is why if there's a solution to solve it um, I'm on board but I guess with the vaccines I just I didn't have enough <clears throat> information um, to make me confident yeah. that it wasn't actually going to adversely affect me because something else that people have said is the vaccines may affect fertility um, mm. it might impact maybe birth defects and things like that from people who've taken a vaccine. Is there any potential truth in that? Or again, is that a myth? 
So <clears throat> again, back to how these vaccines work, you're introducing a piece of mRNA, basically giving your body instructions as to how to make the spike protein. Those instructions are broken down naturally within a couple of hours or days. The spike protein itself is destroyed by your immune system and then you store a memory of it. So these, you know, this genetic material in the vaccine goes to your muscle cell. It does not interact with your reproductive system, your reproductive organs, your reproductive cells in any way. It doesn't interact with your DNA in any way. Um, so there's no way that it could affect your, your fertility. Those, those discussions are, I don't know what they're based on, but it's unfounded. It's not true. Okay. And I, honestly, I would never take anything that would affect my fertility because I want to have kids some way, someday and I would never advise anyone else to, to take something that would, you know, affect their fertility down the road. Um, I think maybe it comes from the, the sort of hesitancy with recommending the vaccine for pregnant women, but that is because in the clinical trials, um, there was not a specific study done on this group of people, just like, you know, there isn't a specific study for young children. There wasn't a specific study targeting pregnant women, but there are people who participated in the clinical trials who got pregnant during the trials or got pregnant afterwards, and they went on to have healthy deliveries and healthy babies. There are pregnant women who are taking the vaccines. I will plug that pregnant women are more likely to suffer a severe form of the COVID-19 disease and end up hospitalized or potentially die or have their, their unborn baby affected if they are infected with COVID-19. So they are definitely a high risk, <clears throat> a high risk group. Um, so for any pregnant woman out there, I would advise you to just consider that when you're thinking about whether or not you want to get vaccinated, is the risk worth it, you know, to potentially contract the virus. Um, but, you know, clinical trials are ongoing on specifically pregnant women, but there are many pregnant women who are taking the vaccine and there's no evidence that it adversely affects them. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's, let's talk side effects. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel you'll you'll be honest with me on this because oh yeah <laughs> I'm I, I'm aware that the media now push for everyone to get a vaccine so for me it's only telling one side of yeah I have honestly I have no skin in the game like I'm literally getting nothing from this <laughs> yeah. other than other than honestly educating because it's mm -hmm. just very sad to see so many like people from other races they're just like rushing and fighting to get this vaccine and then you talk to black people and they're like oh I'm not taking that and it's just what is happening are we not protecting ourselves I made sure I sat down with my my family and my close friends and made sure they understood because I need you all to be protected I need you all to be safe but it goes out to the wider community as well that you know I just want to ensure that people have the facts to make a decision about getting uh, protected against this disease. Sure. So, so what kind of side effects can we expect from taking the vaccine? Right. So uh, most people will experience things like a, a sore arm. So at the injection site, which is typically what you experience with like an influenza vaccine, many of the side effects are similar. So you have um, fevers. Sometimes it could be a high, a high fever. You have muscle aches, headaches, um, transient sort of short-term side effects that you experience with any vaccine. And those things probably last two or three days, um, if that much. 
Um, one thing to note though, is that if you're taking the vaccines that require two doses, you're more likely to experience side effects after your second dose. So, uh, you know, just kind of plan for that. Don't have any huge activity. It's not always 100% gonna happen in everyone, but a lot of people experience more severe side effects after the second vaccine dose, which would be, you know, like a high fever or muscle pain, or you feel really ill and you just have to lie in bed for a day. And then you bounce back and you have your antibodies, you're immune and you go about your life versus <laughs> contracting the coronavirus and getting COVID-19 and you have no idea how it's gonna affect your body. It could ravage your body. You can have long-term effects, which we're seeing now. People who even have a mild form of the disease, mm -hmm. they have, um, their lungs are affected or they can't do activities as well as they could have before they were infected. So it's a very complex disease that we want to try as much as possible to avoid. So if you can get that immunity via a vaccine where it's just a spike protein versus the full-blown virus, I think you know people should really strongly consider that option. Sure. So, so why is it after a second dose that you're more likely to get side effects. What's, what, what's the reason behind it? Yeah, so the first time, the first dose that you get is sort of a primer for your immune system. So it's the first time your body is seeing the spike protein, uh, it kind of attacks, gets rid of it, stores the memory of it. But then when you get your second dose, which is uh, a booster to in basically make that immune response bigger, um, your body's already familiar. So now it's seeing the vaccine as sort of a, a intruder. And it kind of has a, a much greater response to it because you already have an army of immune cells that are looking on the lookout for it. Um, so the purpose of the second dose is to make that army that's on the lookout a bit larger. So when you actually are exposed to the virus, your, your body is able to respond very quickly and prevent the virus from getting into too many of your cells and causing that very severe disease that can lead to death or um, or hospitalization. Mm, I see. And if you've already had um, COVID before, mm -hmm. does that not make you immune already? Or do you still need to get a vaccine? Because I'm sure a lot of people who have got it already and have recovered will be thinking, yeah. I need to get the vaccine now. Yeah, that's the thing. So when you have a, a natural infection, the amount of virus that you're exposed to from a natural infection can vary from person to person. Also, the immune response will vary from person to person based on that level of exposure, which we don't really have a good way of measuring. Um, but essentially, when you have a natural infection, your body is exposed to the full-blown virus. So you have your immune system trying to fight the virus, trying to you know, get rid of it, but then you also have your body trying to store a memory of it so it can pre be prepared if it's attacked again in the future. So there's sort of a division of labor versus when <clears throat> you receive a vaccine, you're just seeing the spike protein is not the full-blown virus. So your body can dedicate all of its energy and resources to storing a memory. So you have more efficient uh, immunity that is developed. Um, and of course, a vaccine is a standard dose that ensures that every person gets the same exposure so you, you have more reliable immunity with a vaccine versus natural infection. And you see people who have previously had COVID-19 um, can get in, reinfected. So, uh, you know, you still do need to get vaccinated, even if you've had COVID-19 previously. Okay. 
And does it, I'm asking a lot of questions, sorry about this, but. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's good, sorry. <laughs> uh, with the new variants that are coming out, like there's mm-hmm. the Brazilian variant, which everyone's talking about is having mutated and it's quite, and it's dangerous. Does mm-hmm. the vaccinations protect us against new strains that are either out now or that might come out in the future as it continues to mutate? Right, so uh, going back to um, immunity, you want your body to have that protection against whatever the specific pathogen is. And coronaviruses are within a family, but these mutations that we're seeing are kind of our fault because we've let the, the virus spread around the world for mm. over a year, essentially. And the virus, it replicates by making copies of itself in one host and then spreading to another host. Um, so if you're constantly making copies of things, so if you're copying the same sentence over and over and over, at some point you're going to make a little error or, you know, make a mistake in what you're doing. So that's also what happens with viruses. You have these small errors being made that are called mutations. And when that mutation is replicated and propagated down, you know, a branch of the viral family tree, you have a a variant strain being developed, um, But a lot of the variants that we're seeing, they are due to mutations in that specific spike protein, which is used by the virus to enter our our bodies. Um, The current vaccines do provide protection against that. The danger that we're seeing, though, is that if we allow the virus to continue to mutate, there is a possibility that there will be uh, variants that can evade the, the vaccine the immunity provided by the vaccine. So it's kind of a race against mm. these, this, the continued spread and mutation of the virus versus vaccination to put up roadblocks within the population to the viral spread and prevent or reduce, highly reduce the likelihood of, of those mutations occurring. Um, but yeah, variants, I mean, that's the thing to keep an eye on. But I'll also add that because mRNA technology is so um, modular and flexible. It's very easy for scientists, if they have the sequence, which they do, of these variants, they know exactly what has changed in the the spike protein sequence. They can design a vaccine that targets that specific mutation. And I think Moderna already has a a vaccine candidate against one of the specific uh, variants. Um, so that might be if, you know, these variants continue to, to propagate, there might, there may be a scenario where we will need a third vaccine dose as sort of a booster to protect against specific variants that are becoming more widespread. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Cause as we were talking about, it just kind of made me think then, mm-hmm. is a vaccines or other vaccines going to be accessible by everyone worldwide? Because mm-hmm. what I can potentially see here is certain places, mm-hmm. some place in Africa, for example, being left behind. And if not, if everyone around the world isn't getting the vaccine, does that mean that coronavirus is just always going to be around and we're never going to be fully safe, um, even despite taking the vaccine? Yes, but... Um... <laughs> I will say, okay, the vaccine access issue is definitely a huge problem that I think governments need to put more focus on because honestly, like you said, it's not 
a situation where you can just vaccinate your population and then we're good to go. No, we live in a, a global world and you know you have economies that are in, interconnected, you have people traveling around the world. So it's kind of a, a global issue. Um, and what we're seeing is that a lot of richer countries like the US, Canada, maybe the UK, they're buying up a lot of vaccine doses enough to vaccinate about two or three times the number of the actual population if all the candidates are approved. Um, whereas in developing countries, they don't even have enough doses to vaccinate like one in 10 persons. Um, so that's definitely a big issue. Um, I know there are organizations like COVAX, I think it's run by the United Nations where they're specifically focusing on getting vaccines to developing countries and increasing access to those regions. Um, and another issue would have been uh, transportation. Again, the research that I'm doing to make that easier, but candidates like Johnson & Johnson's vaccine that only requires refri uh, refrigeration at four degrees Celsius, that's a great option for those regions that don't have you know, the cold chain supply of those really low temperature freezers mm -hmm. for like the mRNA and um, vaccines produced by Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, I'm trying to think about your question. So uh, yeah, this is very possible that you have a situation where the richer countries are well protected, relatively well protected, mm -hmm. and then poor regions that aren't being vaccinated, you know, they have they're being overrun by these variants and there's continued mutation. That's a very real issue that we're trying to fight against right now by <laughs> I, again, what the United Nations is doing, and I'm sure other organizations are a part of it as well, but it's sort of like a race against the virus and getting people to adhere to public um, public health measures and get vaccinated. So, uh, hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's like a worst case scenario, yeah. things getting out of control with the variants. Yeah, um, the first interview I actually did on this podcast was with um, a guy called Adi Adiemi. Um, so he's a glo global health policy expert, and we spoke mm. a little bit about this topic. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I I I hope I don't. We don't see a situation where, you know, it widens the disparity between the richer and the poorer countries because yeah, some have access that. and some don't. Um, that'll make me want to, you know, use use me my own take of a vaccine as a bargaining chip, like make sure they get it. <laughs> as well kind of thing um yeah yeah so yeah it'd be good to kind of it's definitely a concern space mm. Mm. Now it's, so why from what everything you've said makes like makes sense to me um and it's clear why can't we make it a compulsory thing then for people to take the vaccine because surely this is reliant on everybody getting the facts and deciding to take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But if too many people aren't, um, what's what I'm looking for? If a lot of people aren't willing to take the vaccine, yeah. it doesn't solve the issue, does it? So is there nothing we can do to make it compulsory or is that a violation of human um, rights, basically? I'm, I don't really know like the specific laws that govern this or anything or you know the ethics behind it behind why you can't make it compulsory um but so yeah I can't really answer that question as mm. to why but for now it is you know a choice 
but a very important choice that affects everyone else. So I always tell people I feel like I'm stuck. <clears throat> I'm stuck in this really big group project and you're kind of depending on everyone else to do their part so we can make the grade or graduate but it's not a situation where you can just do all the work yourself and then they take credit for your work whatever at least we're out no everyone literally has to do their part so that makes it a very unique situation okay and you're definitely doing your bit so I mean what to kind of round um, <laughs> yeah I'm I'm still in line to get vaccinated even though I do vaccine research I'm not you know elderly I'm not high risk I don't have pre- pre-existing conditions mm. that put me in any of the priority groups so I'm patiently awaiting my turn um, but in the meantime I'm definitely encouraging other people who do have mm. the option available to them to to get vaccinated sure so what would you say just to kind of round off this uh round off the conversation um to those listening who are still unsure about taking mm. the vaccine, like what would you kind of say to them? Um, I would say that, so vaccine hesitancy is a very um, sort of personal and specific issue. You know, people have differing, is, um, differing reasons for why they are hesitant. So you as an individual, you need to figure out exactly what your specific reason is. Like, why don't I trust this vaccine? Why don't I feel comfortable enough to take it? Is it that I feel like they haven't vaccinated enough people or I want to wait? Like, I've had some friends tell me like, oh, you guys can go ahead and, and take it in the first batch. I'm going to wait until next year and, and see what happens. <laughs> but I mean, at this point, we've had people, a lot of people are still thinking like, oh, this is an experiment on the population, but we've had people who have been vaccinated and a year has already passed because, you know, those people who were in the clinical trials. So if something crazy was going to happen, typically you would see this within um, two months. So that time frame was factored into the clinical trials and what the FDA was looking for, et cetera. But for the people who need more time, a year has passed. In fact, <laughs> it is no longer experimental. This is just literally about saving people's lives at this point. So if you do have something specific, please, you know, try to find an answer, look it up, find a reputable source, talk to someone who's informed, get the answers. If you're trying to see um, I want to wait until 10 million people or 50 million, like whatever number you're, you're thinking, find a way to track that so that you're, you know, like when that mark is reached and, you know, find the answers to the questions that are preventing you from getting vaccinated, essentially, whatever they may be. Mm. Um, that's what I would advise people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you said it really well. And also with that waiting, just without scaremongering it's also worth considering that you know if mm-hmm. this virus kind of different people contract it you don't want to leave it too late before you get the vaccine in case you become infected yourself so um that's something to consider as well yeah definitely cool no i mean thank you it's it's great honestly to have someone like you who's able to speak the facts um and tell us exactly kind of the details around it and what's true and what's not true and I know I'm more likely to believe you <laughs> than yeah I've, I've had people yeah <laughs> I've had people reach out to me like yeah I've heard all of this before but it makes a difference coming yeah from you um so it's kind of you know I, I really want people to understand that this vaccine is not you know the government's vaccine that they're trying to push mm-hmm. on us 
Black people are involved in the development of it, the testing of it, uh, the approval process. Um, so, uh, you know, people who are involved is kind of, I feel as a scientist, I feel a social responsibility to kind of do this type of vaccine education work and talk about it and answer questions and address concerns. Because again, it, it is a matter of, of life and death. Mm. True, true. So where, where's the future life for you then? Um, so you're currently working on oh big projects. <laughs> big question. I know, the, the <laughs> F word, the future. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm sort of at a crossroad at this point. I am a, a postdoc right now, which is sort of the phase after you get a PhD, you continue doing research, but it's a bit more independent. Um, but I'm sort of at a crossroad where I'm trying to decide if I want to stay in academia or not, um, because I am really interested in um, policy work and science communication and health advocacy and that type of stuff. So I'm, I'm still figuring it out. I'm trying to find a way to tie all, all of my interests together and explore a career path that, that I would really enjoy and could tie in the research that I like doing as well. So I'll see how it pans out in yeah. the future for me, yeah. I'll, I'll be watching your progress closely because um, I can see great things ahead. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. no that's 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 great um thanks for coming on um i really appreciated yes, having this conversation with you clarifying some of the things and questions that i had and I know other people had as well so how can people find you if they want to get in touch i am on twitter at asher underscore underscore williams i'm on instagram at asher jw underscore and disclaimer i do post a lot of like vaccine related content on my instagram but i try to make it really fun because you know as my friends on there i'm trying to educate people in a fun way mm -hmm. so you will see like a lot of silly tiktoks on there oh i'm also on tiktok at dr underscore asher williams okay. um yeah please reach out if you have if you have like follow-up questions or you have a question about something that I said on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to me. I've been doing a lot of like one-on-ones in my DMs, which is time consuming, but definitely worth the effort to get people to a point where they feel confident. Yeah, for sure. Now we appreciate you and we thank you for coming on. Um, this has been the Being Bane podcast. Um, I'm Siji. You can find us on Instagram at the B and Bane and our email is the B and Bane at gmail.com. So please reach out, let us give give us feedback on this episode and yeah, we'll see you for the next episode. And thank you again, Asha. Bye. Thanks, Asha.